0: This is the Workplace Podcast with your host, William Corliss, brought to you in association with Yellowwood, providers of executive coaching, corporate training and facilitation, your external learning and development partner. Each week we focus on a different aspect of the workplace. We hear from guest speakers who are subject matter experts and are incredibly talented at what they do.
1: Welcome to the Workplace Podcast. Our topic today is the anti-fragile organization. Returning to podcast once again to discuss her book, Adaptive HR, Impactful HR for the New and Virtual World of Work, is Marianne Rue. Marianne has 30 years experience as a HR executive, future or work strategist, business school professor and board director. She currently runs Rue Consulting, a leadership and transformation consulting firm based in Ireland. She teaches at several business schools around the world, including the Irish Management Institute. Marianne holds a PhD in leadership in the future of work context from Swinburne University of Technology. She's an expert in adult edgy development, complex problem solving, personal agility, strategy, agility and transformation. Marianne has published a book on Adaptive HR and a personal agility reflection journal, Knowing Your Superpowers is the Key to Your Success in a Changing World. And she's featured in Maturing Leadership, How Adult Development Impacts Leadership. Marianne also works pro bono on developing women and alleviating poverty and trauma. She has served on the boards of Hager Australia, Hager International, YGAP and the Edmund Rice Foundation. Marianne was chosen as one of the 52 inspirational women at work in South Africa in 2004, one of the 20 female entrepreneurs by management today in 2011 in Australia. And in 2015, she won the Excellence in NFP Consulting Award from the Worldwide Who's Who. Marianne Roo, welcome back to the Workplace Podcast.
2: Thank you. I feel like that's way too long.
1: Well... (laughs) It is all true. And why leave any of it out? And I really want to discuss your book here. Congratulations on this. You are obviously very busy. This is Chalk a Block with Research, Quotes from Leaders, Checklists, Diagrams of Models and Frameworks. This is a manual to all OD practitioners and HR people. So I may suggest that this should be hidden in people's uh, desk as a quick reference manual chapter one the future of work and the need for hr then it goes to people strategy for the new world of work future proof your hr operating model structure and capabilities design fundamentals for ex- exceptional employee experiences modernizing key talent processes becoming digital leading dual transformations redesigning organizations leadership and teams and bringing it all together this is such a rich book. Congratulations! Can you t- can I ask you why write this book? What did it, why did you felt there was a need for this book?
2: As you know, I've been an HR director twice. Um, I've been a consultant for most of my career, and I'm also a professor. So I bring this combination of of research and evidence and. And one of the things that have bugged me a lot, I either get brought in by boards and by executive teams outside of HR to come and do massive transformation and strategic projects. Or when I was an HR director, within six months of being in my role, um, my CEOs or boards would say to me, but you're not a normal HR person. You're, you're like a strategist. You know, maybe we should give you strategy and maybe we should add transformation to your to your title. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm just doing this the way that I think it should be done. You know, I, I'm, I'm, for me, the business is all about people, and 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 you've know, going to manage the cost of that. You've got to, you know, deliver like real company outcomes, customer outcomes, and I measured myself that way. And I, I think that you know, as I go back into universities and I'm teaching master students and MBAs. Um, I've just become so aware that what we are using in HR and what we are teaching in HR is so obsolete. It is so obsolete. It's 30 to 50 years ago. Uh, a lot of it comes out of first and second industrial revolution, and we have not adapted it. We're in a future for context. It is not the same place, nine box models. I just see it everywhere, <laughs> nine box talent models. I want to cry when I see these things. Um, and it's just not relevant for the future of work so then I thought to myself I've been teaching a lot of this I've been consulting a lot of this but where can people at scale upskill and reskill themselves because HR never spends any time on their own upskilling and reskilling they do this for everybody else but themselves systemically so they can transform themselves end to end Um, and I thought okay why don't I just during COVID because I had time sit down and just capture everything that I've taught systemically about how to transform HR and transform the business at the same time. Because we've got these two different things that we have to do. We have to transform ourselves while we are transforming the business to be relevant in the future of work. And I just thought about this and and the flow, like the chapters you've got there for me is the flow of how I do the work. I start with what's the context we're in, right? And then therefore is our people strategy now it's our HR operating model right for that context and then how do we enable that well we enable that through employee experiences because it's all about experience end to end we have to think like service designers and in there we've got to modernize these horrible performance management processes we have and these nine box talent models we use and all these horrible other competency-based processes and things that are so 1970s, 80s, and 90s, right? Got to modernize those things. And then we've got to digitally enable that and use the data. And once we've solved that problem, now we have time to get into the real stuff, which is reskilling, upskilling, transforming, restructuring for agile structures. Now we've got time and space, right, to do that. So it's a real flow of everything I've always done. And I've been really lucky that I've had clients who've been willing to go on these journeys with me and test out all of these things. And I've reskilled and upskilled their entire HR teams. And people actually say to me, they take the book and they literally restructure and transform their business using this book as a guide. I've got people going, I'm now using chapter four to do this. And I'm so happy about that because I can only teach so many people in my programs, but this book gives everyone access to it.
1: I think it's so insightful. And the thing I was commenting on beforehand was that there are no story arcs or narratives around this. It is simply rich with here are quotes from business leaders. Here was the the business case. Here's what we did. it. Here's the strategy. Here's the framework. So that brings me to mind that we're going to have chief HR officers listening in here OD practitioners, HR practitioners, and what are the challenges that they're faced with at the moment? What do you think are the, the, the barriers for them to think systemically at the moment?
2: I feel like they're exhausted and they are burnt out from the last two, three years of COVID response and hybrid work trying to keep people back to the office. And I feel like that's hijacked the entire thing, right? And meanwhile, what's happening in the background on the business side is that the digital transformation is being accelerated post-COVID. So industry 4.0 and 5.0 is heating up and automation's heating up. They're still fighting to get people back to the office and focusing on all the wellness issues. But this is happening. This business is transforming and the current capabilities are are becoming obsolete and nobody's really reskilling and upskilling at scale. So they're struggling with this focus over here when actually they've got this focus over here and then they're stuck on the other side because they haven't invested in HR tech stacks and data. They're stuck on the other side with a lot of manual processes. So everybody else is getting automated and digitalized and they're still stuck with, emails coming into payroll and spreadsheets to do workforce planning in and all of that so the company goes they've got people over here going you know what i need you to create agile structures for me and reskill and upskill my people at scale and by the way cut some costs and drive all this automation for me and by the way can you just also do that esg strategy now because esg has also become a big thing um While you do that, can you make sure all the people come back to the office and we've sorted out all the wellness issues? And can you just make sure that we just get things done faster over here? Your admin is really not working for us. So they're kind of caught in this horrible conundrum where they've underinvested in their own tech and technology capabilities. They've underinvested in automation of HR processes Um, They're all stuck in horrible HRIS systems that don't actually give them employee experience outcomes or learning experience outcomes. Um, It's more repositories with some good data analytics around it, but it's not driving employee experience or learning experience or curating learning. And they're sitting with this real conundrum. For me, it's like there are four things they should be focusing on, and it's hard to do it because the first thing, if I'm a board director, I say, how, HR, are you driving the agility in the organization? New ways of working, new structures, more fluid organization structures, because I need to be more agile. I need to be able to move my people from here to here without making them redundant. I don't want to see that. You know, I want to see people being repurposed, reskilled, upskilled. So how are you making me more agile? HR, how are you creating capability? What are my capability gaps, human and machine, that I need to fill? Where's the gap? How are you going to fill it? HR, what's the experience my people are having? Are they engaged? Are they, are they are they having a good DEI experience? Are they, you know, are they having a consumer grade experience with digital technology, or do they have to fill in five long forms every time they do something with you? And then the last one I really want them to focus on is purpose. How are you reconnecting people to my purpose so that, you know, we get out of this burnout and we get the energy back into the business? So I want to know those four things. But to get to those four things, you have to systemically transform. And you have to fight like a CFO. You've got to fight like a CFO. You've got to make sure that people understand that the people numbers are as important as the finance numbers, right? You've got to fight like a CFO for this organization because your business is a people business. You deliver through people, through nothing else. You are the most important role in the C-suite, as far as I'm concerned, in terms of the future of work.
1: You mentioned very manual processes like admin. Uh, You talked about payroll, holidays, maybe. What might that look like? So would there be a dashboard? So if I'm listening in then, like what is the software or AI technologies that could help me, um, I suppose, alleviate that workload?
2: Yeah, you don't start with the technologies. The first thing, you map the employee journey and experience, right? Mm. So from all your personas, from external candidates to graduates to whichever those personas are, you map their employee journey, you find out where the pain points are, and then you digitalize it, right? You make sure you digitalize it. Now, you also have to look at, I always say, you've got to have a target operating model as HR and a target interaction model. So you've got to think about your tech stack really successfully, right? So often what you would get is you would get some kind of HRIS. It doesn't have to be an expensive one. Someplace where your payroll data and and, and personnel data is, right? You need that. But that is not good enough. And no ERP system drives an experience. So what you have to do is above, on top of that, you have to have an employee experience platform, right? You have to have something that is, a one sign-on for people that drives them into it without them even seeing what it is and drives things into their calendar, like ServiceNow. So let's say, for example, you've got Workday. On top of that, you need a ServiceNow. None of those are driving a learning experience platform. ServiceNow is an employee experience platform, right? So if you look at a tech stack, the reason we call it a tech stack, if you understand your personas and their journeys, then you need to say, well, what is my target interaction model with them? What is digital? what is human? Do, do if I'm for example, take an applicant, is my first context is my first contact with a bot, with a website, with a person, with a call center and at what point do I speak to a human? If I'm a leader, same thing, right? So what I could do is once I look at that, I build my tech stack. So I've got my I've got my HRI system, I've got my employee experience platform, which integrates everything I'm now going to tip on. There is not at the moment one integrated HR system, unfortunately. So you've got to build a smart tech stack. It can be expensive. It can be cheap. On top of your tech stack, you've got to decide what am I in there automating? Right? What am I automating? What am I putting a bot? Why do you want your HR people? You've got to use bot technology. All of us are used to talking to bots. We get onto our, I get onto my VHAI platform and there's a little thing that pops up that says, how can I help you? That's a bot. I don't need to speak to a human to ask how many leave days I have. If I can ask a bot and the bot answers me, humans are very happy as long as they get the answer. They don't need to speak to a person. I don't want my people sitting in there giving the same answers to simple questions that could be handled by digital I want my people to be at the later end of the interaction model where they are solving problems for people, where they are thinking, where they, and it's also more meaningful work, right? Mm. So my tech stack is my HRIS, it's my ServiceNow platform, it's my automation of what, it, and my AI, my my bot, my my bot or my chat GPT these days that I yeah. that I flow through there, right, that can really Help me with that interaction process. At what point that can triage? You know how all of them say then, well, does this answer your query? No. Well, let me connect you to a live person, live desk, right? Suddenly a live support person now pops up that now interacts with me. All of us are used to this. This is not new for HR. People are doing this with insurance, with cars, with banks. We think, oh, we can't do this. Why not? People are doing this every day if oh no my people are too old i've heard this all i'm like well how are they dealing with the the insurer the insurer just said to them Mm. one day guess what the bank said to them one day you know what i'm not gonna have that many branches anymore you know you're gonna deal with me in this way now um i also personally think that we should make things mobile first always digital and mobile first always when we think of any agile process it can we do a digital mobile because people are untethered from their desks, right? They move around with a mobile phone. So, for me, on top of the service now and the workday, for example, I would always have a performance management app that is really easy to use, that has check ins and daily feedbacks and high fives, and is a really wonderful experience. But remember, for service now, that connects me through to everything, I've got one sign on, it doesn't I don't even know whether I'm in the fifteen-five app or in Workday or anywhere because I'm going through this one sign-on through this employee experience platform. And then I might have something like a learning experience platform connected with its degree or any of those things connected in. So I might have something that goes, I want to check my performance. I want to check my goals. And then I've got another link here that says, oh, I see you've got that gap. Right, let's see what curated content we have for you. Boom, I go off. HR should step out. We should build those things and let those things run. Let it run itself. Everything that people can do by themselves, let it run. Set their goals updated, give high fives, do peer coaching. Let those things run by itself so that we can get to where we're thinking about strategic um benefits and remuneration instead of doing payroll administration, where we are thinking about the employee value proposition, where we are thinking about the organization structures, where we're not doing telling people what courses to go on, but where we are thinking about what capabilities do we need in the future? What are our gaps? What's the best strategies to deal with that? We're not going to need less people, but we need to do different work. We need to do much higher value, much more meaningful, much more strategic work.
1: So that leads me to my next question. And in your book, you quote this. Some companies may not exist in 10 to 15 years time. And this brings me to that whole notion of a fragile company. And we see lots of economic shocks going through different sectors at the moment. And this is why I thought it was very apt to have this conversation. So. So why is that the case? Why why might companies not exist in 10 to 15 years' time? What's going on?
2: I think that they are not adapting fast enough and innovating fast enough for the inflection points in their industry, right?
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And when I do leadership development, and I think HR has got to be at the forefront of this, we need to help organizations make sense of the future of work, right? Mm-hmm. So the C-suite, the executives, the next level down, everybody in the organization's got to look for where are the inflection points in our organ in our industry where are the skills changes in our industry what are the technological changes in our industry what are you know the younger generations looking for when they want to work in our industry if you do not shift your organization's business model and people practices, to adapt to those changes and inflection points, you're going to miss the boat and you're going to become irrelevant. We've seen this. We've seen this with Kodak. We've seen it with Nokia. We've seen it with a whole lot of organizations. I think Netflix is in a lot of trouble. You know, I think Netflix is shown as an example of an organization that, you know, was really way ahead and it was. But now the content's becoming quite blah. I can't find anything I really like. Um, And now I can stream Paramount Plus and I can stream a whole lot of other things. So, you know, I think they are really sitting now and going, what is the next iteration of our business model, right? What's the skills my people need? What's the technologies I need? And HR thinks, we assume that our C-suite and our board understands the future of work and we assume everybody's on track. But I actually think people are not, doing good sense-making, and that is what makes us fragile. We are fragile. We are especially fragile when we're extremely successful with our current business model. That makes us even more fragile than when we are not successful because why should we change? We're expert in this. The clients love us. They'll always – I've heard clients say that. They'll always use our product. Ooh, and then one day they don't, right? Mm. And then what happens? Now you're too far behind, you're struggling to keep up. And we've seen this with so many companies. And it is true, if you don't flip your business model, if you don't start competing with yourself, if you don't start a digital bank when you're an old style bank right now and start eroding your own market share, somebody else will start up a digital bank and take all your customers, right?
1: Just on that then, what are the characteristics of a fragile organization. I thought this was fascinating in your book.
2: A fragile organization as opposed to an anti-fragile. For me, the first thing that you'll see in them, and I've been interviewing leaders for my next book, is that they are infinitely curious, the leaders in them. So you see leaders spending. I actually asked the leaders of these organizations what they do, and they said to me, 50% of their time they spend with their people, and they spend a lot of that with the people closest to the customer and on the ground to listen. They actually listen to customer calls. One of the healthcare organizations I talk to, the executives have to listen to um, customers that, um, you know, give them a minus score. They've got to listen to those um, detractor calls every month and not just listen, come up with a solution to the problem the customer has raised. The actual executive to the meeting the next month, right? And so being it's a lot of scanning and listening to what's going on. And I think that's the first thing they do. And they're not scared to challenge their own assumptions about how things work. They they spend 50% of their own people listening on the ground, but they also spend 25% of their time, believe it or not, externally talking to people externally across industries. They all read 52 books a year, every single one I've spoken to. All of them have very disciplined practices of learning and being curious and asking questions. One of them said to me, one of the things when things become really uncontrollable and, and really what he asks his team is, let's quickly focus on what we can control and take some actions now. Let's ask ourselves, What would a successful company do when they are faced with this? So it's that appreciative inquiry. So I think they've got this curiosity. You've got this possibility. They always have experiments going on in their organization. They always have things that they're trying out. They're trying out here on the side. It might be biting into their own business, but they're trying it out. They're testing, they're exploring, they're experimenting, and they're getting feedback loops. They send little probes out all the time. And they get a lot of this experience from the people on the ground. All right? we call that generative change. It's in the book, right? The generative change methodologies. You run world cafes, you run. When I was in Deloitte, we did every quarter. We had world cafes and innovation cafes. We just brought clients in and we said, what are you struggling with? We didn't sell anything. What are you yeah. struggling with? What's bothering you, right? We came up with little ideas and experiments and we just tried it. And like, let's see what works, what doesn't work. And they're not scared of failure these leaders I'm interviewing, if I ask them, tell me about your best mistakes, they can ramble off the top five mistakes. And they're so proud of it. And they're like, I lost millions here and I lost millions there. And they're so proud of it and what they've learned from it. Usually people shy away from that. So a lot of psychological safety around that, but also a relentless investment in development of people. You know, Novartis, for example, has gone down the road of 5% of people's time. It's 100 hours a year. Everybody in the organization gets for learning. And it is mandated, 100 hours. So they learn, they experiment, they're curious, they try things out, right? They don't mind failing. Um, and they also don't try and be the best at everything. They And they also make sure that what they do is not because they like it and they're good at it, what they do is there because the customer needs it. Mm. Or they can or they can see the customer needs it even if they don't need it yet. So they can see around corners, what Rita McGrath is seeing around corners, looking for inflection points. Because at the end of the day, whatever we do, we solve problems for clients, right?
0: Mm.
2: And if the client no longer has that problem, we become irrelevant, whether we like what we do or not, whether it's driving multiple millions for us or not. At some point, it's not going to be a problem anymore.
1: If I'm a listener, how would I recognize if my organization is agile or fragile? Like, what are the kind of common symptoms that might be on display? Is it something my team members would do? Is it something that I would see in meetings? Is it something my CEO or the board might do? What are the those characteristics or traits?
2: I think the most dangerous thing is when... People get really comfortable, um, and there's not that um, questioning of current assumptions. Um, even when we are doing really well, to say, "Well, what else might we do?" or "Why might this not work in five years from now?" You know, I think you've got to literally poke the bear. So if you see people shutting down those kind of conversations, you know, when people come up and they're like, yeah. "Oh no, 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 let's not. That's a distraction." Like, you've got to listen. I always say you've got to listen for the words people are using. That's a distraction. I know we tried that. It didn't work, right? No, let's stick to the knitting. Let's get back to the basics. I hear these things and I go, mm, yep, here we go. Like, this is our core competency, right? Um, no, let's not. We've had so much change in the business. Let's not um, introduce any more change. You hear, You hear these things. I call it cycling you see this uncomfortable topic coming in the meeting and then somebody will make a joke or they'll ask a committee to look at it or somebody will discount it and then everybody will just oh we're not touching that we're just going to keep cycling and I was talking to a CEO yesterday and she was saying to me that you know she really needs to shift it's a sports organization that you know and it was insolvent a couple of years ago and she needs to shift it significantly. But she says, but my board, my board, my board. You know, if if you're sitting there with boards that are like, oh, no, 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 you know, just just, you know, no, that that's that's too far out. No, that's too different, you know. Are you taking the board with you? I think that you've got to be able to question everything you're doing all the time, even when you're doing well. Question it. Question it. You know, will it still be relevant five years from now? Um, And yes, we can't predict the future, but you've got to, I like question storming. Like often I'll say to people, let's just, what questions would we like to ask ourselves about this? What is, what, let's just question storm, right? Let's just think about it from, I did a, I did a strategy session with a board, um in an energy company and once we did it I said now what I want to do is I want us to edge walk around the work we've done so I want you now to take the perspective of if you are government and you looked at the strategy what be some of the questions you would still have and what would be some of the discomfort you would have if you are a greenie <laughs> from an environmental activist what would be some of the questions you would have what would be some of the discomforts you would have what would you not be seeing in there if you are a you know future employee, um, you guys are still in in coal generation, and these people really don't want to work in it. So I'm an engineer, but I actually really want to work in green energy. What questions would you have? And when they edged walk, they went, "Oh my goodness, we've just been talking about the same things we've always talked about, right?"
1: So it seems to me there's a lot of positive disruption going on and then it's it's going back into that adaptive leadership aspect of are we doing the work is there work avoidance going on here so especially if we palm it off to someone else and then i suppose that leads us to to that question because you've introduced this uh, term the dominant organizational narrative what is that for our listeners
2: The dominant organization narrative, one of the interesting things, you know, I look a lot at OD and I look a lot at culture change. And for me, the the thing we're missing is that I ask when I get to executives and boards, I'm like, can you tell me what the stories are that are being told in your organization? What are the positive stories people are telling? I don't want to hear what the values are and the behaviors that you think is on the wall. I want to know. What stories are people telling, positive and negative? and what are the ones that they're too scared to tell? They want to tell them, but they're too scared to tell them. So the untold stories. And they can't tell me. And I'm like, that's really dangerous because that means that you don't know what the narrative is in your organization. And for me, organizations are actually, they're organisms, right? They're not machines. and they're made up of people and people work through language. people work through relationships, people work through narrative, right? So if you don't know what the narratives are in your organization, or if you've got competing narratives that confuse your people, it's actually really hard to drive strategic outcomes, operational outcomes, alignment, and culture. Because, and one of the key things we have to do is to listen for the stories and the narratives, to understand how that supports or doesn't support our culture and our strategy um, and where we're heading, and then to tell, you know, to clarify those stories for people, to amplify the good ones, to find out why the negative ones are there, to tell anti-story, to tell, you know, these are, we call them anti-stories, to slay any myths that keep perpetuating so that you get control back of the narrative. Because if you, d- but this is not BS, you know, one of the CEOs said to me, you can't do BS, it's got to be real, Um but you've got to be in control of the narrative. This specific CEO I work with used to do a voicemail for all his people once a week, when we still had phones, we would pick up and you go like, I've been thinking about this and this and come straight from him, no corporate communications, nobody's written his speech. And then when it changed to mobile phones, he used to sit on a plane, he's still the chairman of, of an organization, he used to sit on a plane and write to his people, I'm on a plane, they knew where he was, flying from here to here, I've just visited that office, that's what I saw, this is what I'm thinking, this is what I'm hearing your people say, so I'm going to think about this now, let me know what you think, right, every week. So he is in control of the narrative, and he's getting a lot of feedback, right, because that is how—that's what we call it: dialogic od versus diagnostic. We've been really stuck in diagnostics. One employee engagement survey after the other, one pulse survey after the other. Well, what are you doing with it? Are you actually changing the narrative? Are you actually taking action? Or are you just doing it? People are so over being so pulsed and surveyed. Wonderful. What are you doing with it?
1: So, just on that, like dialogic—is—is that—that's dialogues that's Dialogue, what you mean yes. isn't it narrative and and it's i was working with a company before and they had this as part of their culture is how do we gossip success yeah and it's about changing the narrative actually if there was stuff going on what are you doing about it so they give people the the tools to uh speak uh, they give them frameworks to say, listen, what's not working for me and, and what is working and how can we approve to give them that? And then this lovely notion of gossip success. And then that brings me to this whole notion of, of companies and those organisms that are proactively adaptive and resilient. How do we how do we do that? Is it through that agility to we constantly develop people? give them time to learn, that we're constantly focused on the people. Is that how we we do it or in a systemic way?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, every single one of the successful leaders I talk to are infinitely human-centric. Like, there is not even a doubt in their mind that their people is the key to their success. Yeah. One of them actually said to me that he was very unpopular in the beginning when he became CEO of the professional services firm. Because when he got in there, it was the client, the client, the client. And he was like, no, it's not about the client. It's about the people. And he said, because the people are the ones. He said, remember in professional services, consumption and production happens at the same time. And I was just like, that makes so much sense. He was like, if you buy a chair from somebody, you don't know what the mood was of the person who made the chair. Like it might have been good or bad, but you buy the chair. you Just see the chair. But when you're sitting in front of a person delivering a service to you, they're producing and you're consuming all at the same time. And whatever their mood is or their skill level is, is a direct impact on your experience, right? And he's so right. I was like, that is so right. All of them are infinitely human-centric. They spend so much time, as I said, 25% scanning the environment and networking and building partnerships, 50% with their people, and the other 25% they do actually spend on operational success they do want to make sure that their current processes their current operations is running well so if you think about the challenge you're sitting with and this is what hr sits with and the rest of the organization you're always running a dual transformation and we're not good at that so you've got to optimize your current while you are building the future you can't do one or the other some people say to me i don't know what to focus on in my job because I have to do this and that. I'm like, okay, we'll split some of these roles then, right? Mm. Have like Ford, there are people who are still building previous cars and there are people who are building electric cars, right? But you've got to make sure that in time, those people are being reskilled across to this side. And that maybe once these people have their skills, that they go back into this side and go and optimize some of that just from what they've learned here. So what they do is, or GM, sorry, they, they cross pollinate that all the time. And then they also have this adaptive structure in the middle, which are people that can kind of go both ways. So they'll have like automation experts that can optimize current processes because we're still going to use them for three years and they can build automation over here. But they're like a central resource. I really love that. So you call it kind of your entrepreneurial system and your your kind of operating system, right? And then some of these adaptive roles. And for me, the executives, some key roles, maybe a PMO, a program management office sits in there and really helps with that reskilling, upskilling, cross-pollination, but making sure you're focused on both. One of the things I worry about is I look at these fabulous strategic plans and then I look at the operating plans. I've challenged organizations, right? I've said, right, now I've seen the operating plans at the general manager level yeah. I'm going to give you three boxes to put everything in. Box one is next year, year one. Everything you're going to do in year one, and they're all from different departments that have now broken it down, put it in there. Yes. And box three is everything you're going to do in the next two to five years. Can you put everything in there? And box two, can you tell me what you've got that you're stopping doing so that you can create space for box one and box three? Guess what happens?
1: It's always empty.
2: Box two is always completely empty. So nobody's right. stopping anything. Box three is also empty. So we have this fabulous strategy. And then we try and do everything in year one. Yeah. And then I go, okay, so if you collectively look at year one, what is the collective change management that would be required? What's the collective capability impact? What's the collective budgets? And it's undoable, completely and utterly undoable. And then HR, 200 projects. I'm like, fantastic. How are the 15 people in HR going to deliver these 200 projects that you have for the next year? Right? So no project management, no PMO around it, no discipline. We're going to do performance management. I'm like, where's your project plan? Can I see it? Right? Where's your project plan? And how does this fit with all the other work? Can you give me a program management plan that shows me how all of this is working and which resources is going to work on what? No, we don't have that. Like we are our own worst enemy, right? We really have to get our hands around this and do a couple of things really well in the current and start to make time and effort into the future and be brutal about what we stop doing. So that we absolutely, for me, that is how you create that sustainable organization.
1: And in your book, it goes through all the different um, types of leadership and, and the spaces you need to be in that entrepreneurial leadership, the enabling leadership, the operational leadership, and then those three spaces, the adaptive space, the entrepreneurial system and the operational system. So within that context, then, um you mentioned it before generative change. what What is generative change?
2: Generative change is absolutely fascinating. So um I've been trained in generative change by Jervis Bush um, in in Simon Fraser in Vancouver. And I really like it. it it's not brand new. it's It's connected to dialogic OD. Um, but what it is is, and I'll give you an example of a real project. It's when we bring people in from the ground to solve complex problems, um using things like dialogue, appreciative inquiry, world cafes, talent or not talent, marketplaces, et cetera. So in Saudi Arabia, for example, we had an issue with safety, right? So I was doing leadership development, and I wanted them to work on real issues. And they had terrible safety figures, terrible. They had an a million smelter. They had minds, and, man, it was not where it needed to be. And they couldn't figure it out. They had put all the training in the world in there, more policies, more training, more consultants, more processes, layer upon layer. It got so complex that if I stopped my toe, I would have to fill in five forms and sit into two committee meetings. So nobody wanted to tell anybody anymore when they stubbed their toe. And, of course, once you let that slip, then more and more things slip, right? Mm. So I said, okay, what I want to do is I want you to bring 200 people from the shop floor to me. I want them for half a day. Oh, they can't speak English properly. I said, I don't care. I'll work with interpreters. I want them in the room with me. I'm going to do a world cafe with them. And what I did is I put them in groups and I said, tell us why you think the safety numbers are bad. And they came up with a whole lot of reasons. And we analyzed that. And I said, it looks like, hypothetically, that safety is difficult to do here. And they said, absolutely. And I said, okay, now let's flip it. That's the appreciative inquiry. So we've done the World Cafe. If we flip it, what would easy safety look like? Now we flipped it, but the other thing I've used there is a generative image. This is all point of generative change. The generative image is Oh, easy safety, that's not something we've thought about before. It's like Rainbow Nation, right? South Africa, black, white, everything's black, white. Oh, now we rainbow. So what Nelson Mandela did is he used a generative image to change the narrative. So I'm changing the narrative. I'm saying, okay, what would it look like if safety was easy in this organization? And man, they came out, there on the floor. They work with us every day. Loads of ideas of how safety could be easy how they could do it, but it would be easy. And then I said, okay, vote for your top three ideas. And then we took all the ideas and we put it up now in a marketplace. So generative change means coming from the ground, from people, right? And I said, now, because we know people like to work on what they're interested in, go and stand at the one you're most interested in working on, you're most committed to. And people self-organized and just doing that we brought it down to five core ideas that most people wanted to work on. And we said, right, now go into your teams and tell us what little experiment we can do, a real experiment to test this. You come up with it. We gave them some coaches. They sat down. They said, well, for us to do this, we can do this little experiment. And then we said, right, this is all generative change. We, you don't have to do a business case. Remember, you don't have to go through stage gates just go and do it. And I would be like, what do you mean? I said, just go and do it. We'll give you your coach. You just go and do it. And we will track it. And you feed back to us how it's working. And they just go and do it. We call this little probes. And they come back. And guess what? Three of them were signed off, went through the stage gate process, got scaled, and it improved by 10%. That's generative change. Once people start to do that, if you make that, Jervis has done this with organizations where he's actually made this a practice, once you start doing that, people often then start to self-organize and just do this, right? So you really start to get that commitment, that empowerment, the answers from below rather than top down. And what he found in his research is that 75 is much higher, 75% success in generative change, where it's developed by the stakeholders, but sponsored and enabled by leadership. All right, so you bring that. It's generative, right? It's generative, um, and it uses a whole lot of open system methods, World Cafe, etc. It's not for everything, but this is the kind of culture that creates unbelievable change in organizations.
1: And often when we speak about change, we often see the efficacy of and the value of co-creation, and that's a perfect example of it there. And I might I might change it when we talk about change and transformation, then a lot of people will 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 say, Listen, how do you counter for change fatigue and burnout? Like I right, listen, you know, if we're in the space where I'm listening in, I'm like, you know what, this sounds great on paper the reality is like how do we how do we counter for change and burnout
2: just do less and do it really well do your box 1 box 2 box 3 ask yourself what is in box 1 that we've committed to doing what is in box 3 that we we might just start with a small little thing to maybe some research maybe something right what in box 2 needs to go in there and just force yourself to renegotiate Stop trying to be everything to everybody and start to do a couple of things really well. And if you know that to get to the two to five year that you have to implement some technology now, fight for it, fight for it, make better business cases, get the data analytics behind you, but you have to do less. You have to do less and you have to do it better. I still think we're simply doing too much. And it's like, it's like what we call it the in the book, Strategy Beyond the Hockey Stick. It's the peanut butter spread. You give everybody a little bit, right? So it has no really big impact. What you want to do is put your resources, take them from other areas in HR and throw them behind this thing and get that scale and impact and use agile methods. Use human-centered design. Get service designers in there and do sprints. Stop running it over a whole year. Get people in and do an eight-week sprint. Design the thing, test it. Stop doing this. We're going to do performance measure over the next year. We're going to do this over the next year. Use agile methods. This is how software developers get stuff done. Do it the same way, right? Use those Kanban and, and methods. I don't see enough of that in HR.
1: And is that where always on transformation comes from then is that you're constantly working in sprints? Is that, Absolutely. does
2: it have that term? 100%. I mean, I've got clients that are so overwhelmed. We're not even talking HR. I'm just talking overall business. And I've just gone, okay, okay. I just go, I've got one client. I go out every quarter for two days with their top 20. And I'm just going, right, what's our next 90 day sprint? What's our next 90-day sprint? What are the key, what are the key result areas that we have to achieve in the next 90 days? We've got to do this deal, we've got to do this thing from a people, technology, et cetera, right? What do we need to do? And we sit together, cross-functional, cross-organizational, and we say, yes, we have this plan, but what do we need to do in the next 90 days? Because then people can actually focus. Because otherwise, I love sprints. I'm even learning leadership development. I go go on a journey break it down into sprints, right? It's a wonderful way of just, and get really clear. It's like, if you want to do that, then show me what the next 12 weeks are going to look like. Who needs to be involved? What do they need to do? And get it done.
1: So is that where capabilities think, you know, when you're, you know, can you tell us a little bit more about that term? I thought that was fascinating.
2: The capabilities for me is, you know, I think, I cannot find a single HR director right now that I I walk in and I go, can you tell me what your current capabilities are, what the future ones are, and what the gap is? Not one can do it. Um, I don't see anybody using a generic skills framework. There are so many of them. The whole of the Singapore government has built a skills framework for every single occupation in Singapore. Like, you know, you you don't even have to go and look for it. It's there. It's open source, right? Um, So I don't see that. And I think that we're not going to get anywhere. For me, HR just has to stand back and say, right, if I understand where we are and where we need to be as an organization, what is the gap we've got, right? From a capability, for just forget everything else, from a capability perspective. And if I understand that gap, what's the, what's the best people strategy to fill that? Is it buying the people from outside? Is it building it from inside? Is it partnering with somebody? In other words, we have access, not ownership, of the skills, but we don't have to own all the skills. It's much better for us because then we won't make these big redundancies because we just have access to it. Let's think about this a little bit more cleverly. Or do you know? Do we partner? Do we? I beg, borrow, steal. I beg, borrow, steal people from finance and marketing as nature. Director, I'm like, do you know what? Give me one of your young marketing people to come into employee experience design with me. They'll get fantastic experience. You know, give me one of your data people. They can come and do some analytics for me. I'll train them, right? So big borrow, steal, whatever you need to do. But what is your strategy to fill that capability gap? It's absolutely critical. And in HR itself, I believe our capabilities are very much out of date, very much out of date. Josh Burson's got a great new HR capability framework. It's probably one of the best ones I've seen. He's got a 360 around it or an assessment that you can do where you can see exactly where your capability gaps are in modern HR capabilities. For me, human-centered design is a key capability. Digital literacy is a key capability, right? Uh, project management is a key capability. Service design, I don't see these things.
1: And I love that point where you make that the commitment of the CEO is to be the chief change agent. Like, Absolutely. It, how important is this?
2: It's so important for me, the CEO is actually the chief capability officer, the chief change officer, um, and also the chief talent officer. It's not the HR director. From one of the things, there are a couple of companies that do this very well, like BlackRock, who have the HR director partners with the CFO and another executive as a talent committee, and they are responsible for capability, change, et cetera, together. Because now you've got two other extremely strong executives driving those agendas with you. You're not coming in there fighting. You've got them going, you know, no, no, no. I mean, one of the CEOs I interviewed, and I absolutely love, comes out of an accounting background. And he was the only CEO during the financial crisis in Australia who did not let people go everybody else retrenched i'm looking at this now and i'm going what is going on why are we not sharing talent why are we not doing things the way we did during covid and i said to him as a financial person explain to me why you did not let people go because this is the first place the cfos go he said because i'm a financial person i didn't let them go he said i know the cost of letting people go and then trying to rehire them six months to a year later, because the economy will turn. And because he kept them, they came out of the blocks and they went up straight into the big four. They went to number two, I think from number five or something. Within one year, he had all the skills, all the capability and the engagement ready to go, ready to serve the clients, right? He says, because I'm a financial person, I get this. If HR sits with CFO and they start to think like this together with the CEO, that strong triad, we will have a very, very different outcome.
1: So we're going to finish the podcast soon. And I want to finish up on the three questions that people should ask. The what, the so what, and the know what. What are the, what are the importance of those questions?
2: I think it's so important. Um, You know, for me, every time, I do any development or I talk to people or they read a book. I'm like, okay, fantastic. Now, what are the key things you've taken out in your context? In your, in, It's important for you. You're, what's different to somebody else? But so what? So what? And what now? What are you going to do about it? Like, what's one thing you're going to do about it? Because if you just go, that was a wonderful book. That'll go there in that beautiful little shelf you have there behind you. Um, I just, I see that so much. You know, what are you actually going to do about it? Are you going to reskill, upskill yourself? Are you going to go and fight for that tick stack? Um, I just think people don't do something. They're just so comfortable doing. And I think for me, I kind of wonder if we have a bit of codependency, a bit of rescue triangle going on with HR and the rest of the business. I feel like we're constantly, we kind of thrive on being the rescuer and others become the victim and then they turn on us and they become the persecutors because they don't like what we're doing and i feel like we really really have to step out of that role we have to become coaches and challengers um, and creators we cannot stay in that role and it means that we will not always be liked it means that we will poke the bear quite often Um, and it's a very uncomfortable place. Um, It means we're not going to rescue leaders that are bad people, people. Um, We're not going to go and sort out all their employee relations issues for them every time they mess up. But it means that we can then step up and create a sustainable business and not be one of the 40% of businesses that don't make it. I'd rather be in that bucket than keep everybody comfortable and rescue leaders that probably shouldn't even be there. I'd rather be part of saving the organization's long term future than be in the other bucket.
1: So with that call to action, I would like to give you now the opportunity, Marianne, to say if people were to contact you, find more about you, discover your book, how might they do so?
2: So the book is on Amazon, obviously, Adaptive HR. So they just go Marianne Rue and Adaptive HR. Um, I think it is worth reading it, um, but, you know, they can ask you or other people, they don't have to believe that from me. People have found it extremely helpful. They have found that they can actually use this as a guide, these tools. Try it out. Try it out. Take it chapter by chapter. Um, They can also, uh, I've got a website, wwwmarianne um, a lot of my information's on there. Um, and my LinkedIn profile, it's really worthwhile to follow me on LinkedIn um, because I do post on these issues all the time. And I think what I'm trying to do is help people solve problems. So what I'm hearing, I post about, right? So I really try and be helpful. It's I don't try and self-promote. It's not what that's about. It's about talking to you about the issues I'm hearing and seeing and things I'm seeing working and organizations that are doing it well so that you've got those real life examples that would probably be the best
1: I can definitely uh, attest to that that the book the LinkedIn posts all of that uh, and that's that's how we came across each other actually uh, which which is great Marianne thank you so much for returning to the workplace podcast it's been such a pleasure
2: Thank you so much
0: thanks for listening to the workplace podcast with your host William Corliss. Our special thanks to this episode's guest for sharing their expertise with us. If you enjoyed this episode, please download and share it. For updates on future episodes and to get in contact with us about any workplace topics, please follow Yellowwood on LinkedIn and Twitter at different paths. As always, you can head over to yellowwood.ie for any other information. Yellowwood, your external learning and development partner. Provider of executive coaching, facilitation and training. Take a different path to success with your career, leadership, team and organisation.